Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Syracuse is playing for the national title. It's too long, and Syracuse is your national champion. Who's else? What's up, Syracuse fans? It's Mike McAllister from AllSyracuse.com, part of the Sports Illustrated Network, with episode 29 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast presented by Bet Online and Hoffman Sausage Company. I am here with Kyle Left to talk about Syracuse basketball. We have some ups and some downs, a win over Pittsburgh, a loss to Florida State, some more baffling play, some frustration, more Benny Williams not playing. We got a lot of stuff to talk about, Kyle. Yes, we do. Uh, But what matters to me most is anyone who says, like, if you go through all the wins and losses we've had this season and says somehow there was a chance of us going undefeated, well, just so you know, there are no undefeated teams left in the NCAA in the men's division. Uh, all of them now at least have one loss in all of D1, which personally I feel better about now. You know, everyone's an even playing field. Everyone's lost some games, some more than others. Cough, cough, Syracuse, but whatever. We're back in better than ever, a new web interface for the rest of the NBA season and more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online remains your number one spot for all the basketball and football action this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code Believe50, B-L-E-A-V 50, to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. BetOnline, where the game starts. We'll get into all that. But first, before we start breaking down um, the Florida, the Pittsburgh game and the Florida State game, we're going to spend a little bit more time on the Florida State game um, just because I think that's where most Syracuse fans are at um, at this point is that's the game that's got their attention a little bit more than the Pittsburgh game. Just a little um, But before we get into that, I did want to make note of a scheduling change for Syracuse basketball. You may recall that Syracuse had a game against Georgia Tech that was supposed to happen on December 29th. That was postponed because Georgia Tech had COVID issues in their program. That has now been given a date, which is February 21st. So that will happen February 21st in the Carrier Dome. So Syracuse gets another winnable game in the Dome that they will have a chance to screw up in in, um, somehow amazingly new, new ways. So look forward to seeing how that plays out. And then, um, 
Syracuse's game at Notre Dame was supposed to happen on February 22nd, which is the very next day. And you don't schedule regular season games back to back. So they moved that back a day to Wednesday, February 23rd, Syracuse at Notre Dame. So I wanted to make a quick note of that. And then our favorite person to talk about on this podcast is the legendary Sean Tucker. I'm very pleased with this topic. I'm quite pleased, Mike. And while, yes, it is a basketball um, dominant episode, we're going to make note that Sean Tucker participated in his first indoor track meet for Syracuse over the weekend. Uh, Syracuse uh, participated in a meet at Virginia Tech. He ran the 60 meter. He ran it in 7.01 seconds. He finished seventh out of a field of 16. And honestly, he's barely been training for track, right? All of these athletes have been training for track during the entire offseason preparing for this. He's been preparing for football and for you know a month or so has been preparing for track. And it's the first time he's run a meet since high school. So basically two, two or so years. And he finishes seventh. In a field quite, of 16. Nice. Yeah, I mean, nice. he, didn't, he didn't qualify for the final. Um, you know, it was a preliminary. And I think the top four from his preliminary made the final. Um, but and Syracuse had some other good performances at this meet, by the way. Um, they had someone finish with a top 10 uh, time in, in the country so far this year. Um, so, you know, had a couple of other wins and strong finishes. We actually have a recap um, up on allsyracuse.com if you're interested in checking that out. But yeah, I think uh, it tells you how athletic and how fast Sean Tucker is. The fact that he he could pull off something like that, you know, I think most situations you'd expect him to finish it in one of the bottom spots. The fact that he finished middle of the pack, I think, is impressive. And Syracuse tweeted out a picture of him in his um, indoor track uniform. And may I just say, as a um, person who largely is not overly impressed with physique of, of certain athletes, his quads. I have no words. <laughs> they, I his, mean, Sa- Saquon Barkley of the New York giants has a reputation of having perhaps the biggest and most impressive, um, especially at his position. I think he'd be jealous of Sean Tucker's. I mean, just go check out the picture. It is ridiculous. You his, don't, you don't understand it watching him in a football uniform. His quads are unbelievable. Like, like large watermelons attached to his lower half. Normally you say they're small watermelons. No, no, no. These are big watermelons attached to his, his lower half. They're on his legs. Makes yes. no sense. Right. It's it's unbelievable. But anyway, so he performed well. Um, good for him. I thought that's, that's a pretty cool note. So we'll start with the Pittsburgh game. Syracuse wins 77 to 61. Uh, they dominated the second half in this one. You know, it was close for, for part of the first half, but um, it was it was really a game where Syracuse took control early in the second half. Uh, they were losing midway to three quarters of the way through the second half. Syracuse actually fell, fell down by, I think, as many as seven. And it looked like, wait a minute, what is going on here? Syracuse goes on a run at the end of the first half, um, and then they they go on an extended run um, that went into the second half, took control of the game, and it really was not competitive the rest of the way. Syracuse kind of cruised in the second half. Um, 
and ended up winning by 16 points. So it was it was a strong overall performance. They held Pittsburgh to 38% shooting. That includes just 24% in the second half. Pittsburgh only scored 27 points in the second half. Uh, their best player is John Hughley, who is a really good low post scorer. He was just one for six from the floor, only had eight points. He was averaging about 16 a game coming in. So Syracuse held him to about half of his average. And when he doesn't score, uh, it's very difficult for Pittsburgh to win. They were just seven for 22 from three-point range at just two of 10 in the second half. Uh, Buddy Bayheim had a really good game with 24 points. Jimmy Bayheim had a solid bounce back game with 18 points and seven rebounds. Um, Jesse Edwards did foul out again for the fifth straight game, but he had 12 points, eight rebounds and three blocks. Um, you know, Joe Girard had, had another off day with just eight points. Um, but, uh, you know, Cole Swider was over four from three. So certainly some, some things that weren't great. John Bolajak got a little bit of run. Uh, which was interesting. Samir Torrance had a solid 12 minutes, but just kind of a good overall strong game from Syracuse to uh, sort of get themselves back on the winning track after a three game losing streak. We did what we had to do. That is what matters. And we said it last episode, we expected to win this game by a cool 15, 20 points. And we did that. We won by 16. Um, the big note from me from this game though, if anything is buddy behind, as we said, we were concerned about his shooting that he's looked off this year. It's been a little bit of an uh year for him, but he'll pick it up. And there's always a chance. And we said, this is always a chance. He will just light it up one day and that'll win us a game on his own. And he did that, that he just lit it up 24 points. Gotta love that. And he won us the game. And that's what matters. Um, what is concerning though, is the free throw percentage. Uh, I know Jesse Edwards had 10 free throws. So it's going to happen when he makes only four of them shooting 40% in a game is not good. Um, I've heard that some shack numbers right there, but it's, that's a bit concerning going 20 over 31. But if he makes two or three more of those, all of us net bumps up to 70% to our average, it's fine. So overall we got done when we had to get done. Um, Jean-Bolle Jacques, as you said, love to see that. Um, I personally would have loved, even more of some other guys at the end of the game, even if it's not just John Bolojak, get some other guys in there that maybe haven't played a crazy amount this year. Just give them a little bit of run because something we'll discuss in a second, which I'll bring up is that our bench, we need more production. Uh, I believe we have the least productive bench in the ACC at minimum. I believe one of the worst in the nation and all true. It is a very, very, very concerning thing. Now how bad, or not how not how bad, but how little trust there is in going to our bench. So in the past, we've seen eight or nine man teams. We've seen three or four guys off the bench who could play. You know, we're going to come and do something at least. Just give you anything off the bench. I don't see that he that Beheim trusts more than at, more than one person on this bench. It's tailgating season, and no one does it better than Hoffman Sausage Company. Beer Bratwurst, Jalapeno Cheddar Sausage, Kabasi, and Bun Length Chicken Sausage. Add them to the menu with classic German Franks and Snappy Grillers, and fans will go wild. Proudly made in New York since 1879, when you bite into a Hoffman, you experience a little bit of upstate history. Taste tells, Hoffman is a proud partner of Syracuse University Athletics. You look back at some of Syracuse's best teams. 
Look back at their national championship team. They had Billy Edelin, Josh Pace, and Jeremy McNeil coming off the bench. You know, that's a, a guard, a forward, and a center. So you pretty much had, and then you could move guys through, you know, you could move Carmelo to the top if you needed to. Um, you could move him around to play the three or the four. You could move Warwick into the middle if you needed to. Um, you know, you could put Jerry McNamara off the ball and have Edelin come in and play the point. Uh, when you take Quet Dwayne out, um, you could put Dwayne then back in for McNamara. So that you could give guys rest and, and do a lot of things with your lineup um, just by using those three guys. That's eight, that's eight players. You know, I, I don't think anyone's clamoring for nine or 10. I know there are some that would like that, but I think eight is a solid number that Bayheim has shown that he's willing to play. And that should be enough to give all of your starters enough rest um, and, you know, give you some contributions off the bench. And those guys gave you stuff that um, the other players didn't have. You know, you think about Josh Pace and what he did in the lane. You think about Billy Edelin, he was a past first point guard. McNamara was more of a shooter's uh, type of a point guard. So um, anyway, you look back at at the, the team with Wes Johnson and Andy Routens, and they had guys like Scoop Jardine and um, Chris Scoop. Joseph and, and those guys coming off the bench. So, you know, the, there's always Syracuse's best teams have always had good benches. Um, now this year's team obviously is not anywhere close to any of that. And that includes the bench. There isn't a guy that's of the caliber of a Scoop Jardine or a Chris Joseph. There's just not, but we've seen enough that Frank Anselm should be able to give you eight to 10 minutes. Samir Torrance, I think, has earned 15 or so minutes a game um, at a minimum. And then if, you know, Joe Girard isn't playing that well, he can give you a few more. Um, and the Benny Williams thing that we'll get into uh, a little bit later. You know, I, I still think they need uh, to get some production from him. So let's take that discussion right into the Florida State game. And we're going to start um, with what happened at the end of the game. You know, uh, Syracuse lost 76 to 71. This was a game where Syracuse led by as many as 10 in the first half. It looked like they were ready to take complete control of the game, run to Florida State out of the gym and earn their second straight victory and look like they're starting to turn things around. But instead, Florida State battles back. It's just a one point game at the end of the half. Florida State goes on a run to take a lead early in the second half. Syracuse rallies to take the lead back. Florida State takes the lead back again. And you went, what you end up with is Syracuse then inserts a small lineup. They were trailing by about four or five, somewhere in that range, five, six, somewhere in that range. And they took Jimmy Beheim out and put in Samir Torrance. The backcourt was Samir and Joe. Buddy went out to the wing. He played one of the forward spots, Cole Swider slid over to the other forward spot and you had Jesse in the middle. And that lineup gave Syracuse a spark on both ends because with buddy down in one of the corners, he's a little bit quicker than Jimmy is. And so he can cover a little bit more ground than what Jimmy can. And I think that gives their defense a little bit of a different look. And Samir Torrance up at the top of the zone is much more active than either Buddy or Joe are at the top of the zone. And I actually think Buddy is much more active on the bottom line of the zone playing the forward position than he is when he's up at the top. When he's up at the top, he, he tends to stand around a little bit. When I watched him down in the back line, he didn't just stand there at any point. He was moving the entire time. So I think he might be a better zone defender down there. That's just my opinion from seeing him for a little bit as opposed to, um, you know, 
Coach Beheim having 46 years of Hall of Fame experience. So, um, you know, who's to say that I know more? But that's just what I what I saw in the little bit that that Buddy had switched down to the small forward spot. And with about a minute or two to go, um, Jimmy Beheim subs in, and Syracuse goes back to their normal starting line. And to be fair, Syracuse was trailing by three. Jesse Edwards missed a shot. Jimmy came in and got a tip in to cut the lead to one. Syracuse plays perhaps its best defensive possession of the game forces a turnover. It was either a shot clock violation or a throw out of bounds. They both kind of happened at the same time, but either way, Florida state doesn't get a shot off. Syracuse is down by one 34 seconds to go. They dribble the ball up the court, call timeout with 30 seconds to go. There's about a four to five second difference between the game clock and the shot clock. Syracuse is in prime position to, um, get up a last second shot to potentially win the game and out of the timeout, they pass the ball to Swider who passes it over to um, Joe Girard. He dribbles around for a few seconds and then Girard drives into the lane. When he gets into the lane, he gets double teamed when he gets to about the free throw line. They were not going to let him drive it in and try to either draw a foul or get a layup. He's the best free throw shooter on the team. He and Buddy are the two best on the team. It's almost automatic if he gets in there that he's going to make both. So they double him. He passes off to Jesse Edwards. Edwards was kind of in the block just outside of the paint um, on the side of the basket closest to Syracuse's bench. I thought from watching it live and then watching the replay a couple of times, he had an opportunity to take a dribble towards the basket and get a shot up over a smaller defender. Instead, he takes a dribble away from the basket, turns, and gives a bounce pass into Jimmy Beheim, who was in the lane pretty close to the basket. He had posted up his defender. I thought when Jimmy caught the ball, he was going to turn back to his right, which would have been kind of towards the middle of the lane and go up for one of his hook shots that he's pretty proficient in. It's it's solid, especially when he's a little bit closer to the basket. And Florida State's defender, who I think was Raekwon Evans, if if I'm remembering correctly, he goes, it was either him or Irma Cloud. Um, I'm struggling to see remember which one it was, but regardless, he, he keeps his hands straight up in the air and Jimmy leans into him. Now I thought you could have called a foul on that shot only because earlier in the game, Syracuse had been called for something similar a couple of times and Florida state got free throws out of it, but they didn't call anything. Jimmy's shot was short because he had leaned into the Florida state defender and couldn't get everything behind the shot. The ball bounces out to the sideline opposite Syracuse's bench Evans grabs it, and instead of Jimmy fouling him, because Jimmy followed him out there and was right next to him, there's about nine seconds to go when Evans grabs the ball. He stands there almost hoping that Evans is going to step out of bounds. Evans does not. Instead, he throws the ball the length of the court to uh, a Florida State player for a dunk. And now there's about 4.5, 4.9 seconds to go, something like that. And Syracuse is down by three. So, yes, not an ideal situation, but you're still a three-pointer away from sending it to overtime. Joe Girard, instead of turning and looking to throw the ball to one of his players who can race up floor and try to get a shot off, he decides to chuck the ball the length of the floor, 
for some unknown reason. It's intercepted by Florida State. Syracuse fouls. Florida State makes the free throws. The game is over. Um, it was just a meltdown of epic proportions. There were about five or six mistakes in that whole sequence, whether it was Edwards not going up for a shot when he could have Jimmy Bayheim taking the wrong type of shot and not turning the right way. Jimmy Bayheim not fouling Raquan Evans, Joe Girard's throw down the court. Um, it was just a complete meltdown and it's Syracuse's fourth loss in the last five games. Each of those games have been decided by five points or less. Each game leaves you scratching your head on how the heck did Syracuse find a way to lose that game. And we've reached the point, some of you got there before I did, that's fine, where they always say that good teams find ways to win close games. Teams that aren't very good find ways to lose close games. And that's what Syracuse is doing. Kyle and I were talking about this prior to recording, that if you look back at the schedule, the Georgetown game, the Colgate game are games you should not lose. These last four games that Syracuse lost, they're so close. And Syracuse does some just unbelievable things at the ends of these games that you're a player two in each game from winning them. And if you took those six games and put them all in the other column, I know you can't do this. I understand. But Syracuse is sitting at 14 and three instead of eight and nine. If you even do it with three of them, they're 11 and six. And yes, 11 and six is not great, but you're still in a position where you can make a run towards being a bubble team. You're still in the discussion. The NCAA tournament's not a ridiculous thought. It is now at eight and nine. And this is what teams that aren't very good do. They find ways to lose games in strange fashion like this. Yeah. For fans who, who have listened to us talk uh, and listened throughout the football season, they would know through the first like nine games or so of the Keys football season, we still felt optimistic about the team. That the losses, a lot of them you couldn't blame on us, that it was a lot of refereeing problems, things outside of our control, bad calls, everything. We were like, okay, this team still has a positive. We're sitting at around 500, but we're looking up. We look good. I honestly am not confident in this team. I have no positivity with them. Yes, we said with the Pittsburgh game, we looked good. We played well. That is one of the rare occasions we have played well for an entire game. That it's just at some point in every game, it feels like for us, we shoot ourselves in the foot. And we we try and walk it off like nothing's happened. And that's not how it works. I'm sorry. And watching, especially that last sequence happen, was just painful. That Joe made the right choice in passing out to Jesse. It looked good. If Jesse was playing more, and I know we'll discuss him later, he probably would have dribbled in, as you said, and tried to take a shot. But he hasn't played a lot. And so he instinctively comes out and passes out to... um, to Jimmy and then Jimmy was having the equivalent of a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad game and chucks up a jank shot. Cause he's like, that's what I need to do. And it backfired. And then everything else after that backfired, we just saw it in the Dallas Cowboys game. And I know bringing in football again, why am I doing this? Dallas Cowboys about 20 minutes ago, had the worst situational awareness I've ever seen. Dak Prescott 
basically just let the clock run down because he slid too far and he put the book, gave it all to his center instead of giving it to the ref. And the Cowboys lost the game because they muffed it at the end. The exact same thing happened here for Syracuse. Situational awareness. It is something you should know when you play the game. It is taught to you, which is if you are down by, in this case, one, and all of a sudden there are nine seconds left and there's a guy with the ball right next to you, just foul him and let him take the free throws. That way you have a shot to tie the game regardless. It is situational awareness. And it all went tits up. It all went horribly. It all went sideways all of a sudden. And I don't get where this team has gone wrong in recent years. We've been so good situationally this year. No, that ain't it chief. That ain't it. No, it's, and you know, it just goes back to that's why Syracuse is losing games. And if they're going to find ways, um, you know, to preserve Jim Bayheim's streak of, of winning seasons, then they got to figure that out because as much as we talk about the issues on defense, as much as earlier in the season, we harped on rebounding and guess what? During this streak where they've lost four out of five, they've out rebounded every opponent in each of the five games. And in the past rebounding was such an issue that when Syracuse out rebounded opponents, they won when they didn't, they lost. It's not that anymore. And yes, Syracuse has issues with defense, right? Against Florida state, they gave up 12 of 20 from three point range. Think about this. This is crazy, right? If you sh- if you're shooting 37, 38% as a team from three and above, you're shooting the ball pretty well. If you're above 40%, you're really good. If you're 50%, that's elite. That is fantastic shooting. If Florida State shot 50% from three in this game, Syracuse wins. They shot 60. They were 12 of 20. I mean, I mean, that's that's so yes, perimeter defense is still an issue defense overall still an issue rebounding not really an issue um turnovers from the point guard position joe gerard had five turnovers in this game still an issue but the biggest thing is when they get down to the final couple minutes of the game they got to figure out how to make winning plays instead of losing plays period because i think syracuse for the rest of the season outside of playing a duke maybe even a north carolina they're largely going to be in these games they're going to have opportunities to win a lot of these games. And if, so if you're looking for a silver lining, and a lot of people know I'm an optimist, I'm a silver lining type of a guy, it's that they're in these games and they do have chances to win, but they haven't figured out how to do that yet. And they certainly have to. Now, one of the positives from this game was the fact that Syracuse went to this alternate lineup that we mentioned, where they went a little bit small, but he moved down to the three and Samir Torrance came in. And he played very well during his 16 minutes for Syracuse. He had four points on two of four shooting, four assists, just one turnover in 16 minutes. Um, If he plays the same number of minutes and keeps up that pace as Joe Girard, he's going to end up with somewhere around eight points and eight or nine assists. And obviously, given everything else that Syracuse has offensively, you'd be pretty excited about that because that means guys like Joe, like uh, uh, Buddy Bayheim, Cole Swider, et cetera, getting open looks. But at this point, with Joe Girard struggling the last few games, lots of turnovers, and when he doesn't shoot the ball well, it seems like the other areas of his game, defense, turnovers, get a little bit worse. Um, I think in those scenarios, I think Samir Torrance has earned 15 minutes a game. 
And in the scenarios where Joe isn't playing well, he perhaps earns a little bit more. I completely agree. Samir has earned it. He is the one guy that it looks like Jim Beheim trusts to be go off his bench. He's the sixth man for this team. And I'm totally cool with that. But he's the only one that seems to have earned the real trust of Jim Beheim and his coaching staff to come into games off the bench because Buddy and Cole got 40 minutes apiece. Joe got 36, you know, as you said, he did not play well. Jesse got 34, but that's just Jesse's Jesse. That's fine. Subbing him out a little bit is fine to keep him out of foul trouble. Jimmy, obviously 29 because he had a terrible game, but still Buddy and Cole at some point need rest. There's got to be someone else other than just Samir. Samir is great. He is awesome. I said he earned this time. But why isn't anyone else earning the time? I'm I'm getting lost now looking at this. I know we said we'll discuss it, and there's more to discuss with it. But Samir like has earned it, and you can see the production coming. But it's only come because he's gotten more minutes to play. Whenever he's played a very small amount, okay, he played well. Let's give him two more minutes. And then two minutes on top of that. And you know what? Give him four minutes on top of that. Joe's playing poorly. Let's give him a couple more minutes. And all of a sudden, you're up to 15, 20 minutes a game. And that's perfect. But why isn't Joe, why isn't Jimmy doing this or Jim Beheim doing this with Anselm? Or why isn't he doing this with Benny Williams or John Bullock or literally anybody else? I, I don't get why no one else is playing in this game. And could fresh legs have helped? Possibly but we can't know because we didn't get to see it. We only saw Samir play 15 minutes a game. He should have got 20. That would have been nice, but he didn't get it. And that, again, it's just one of those things that I know I'm, I'm asking for too much, whatever. I don't care. He should be playing more than he has. And as you said, Joe is on a cold streak of all cold streaks. So play Samir, give him 20, just let it happen. But for some reason, no. Yeah. And, and that, that kind of brings me to the next point here, which is um, Jesse Edwards. And he's been, he's been good all season. He was good in the last couple of games against Florida state. He had 15 points, seven rebounds and three blocks. Really good game from him. The first time in six games, he did not foul out. Only had three fouls. He cut, he cut down on those, you know, he had three fouls, but he played 34 minutes and he cut down on those stupid fouls, right? It's, it's the one where you're unnecessarily going over the back when you don't have the rebound. It's the reach-ins at stupid points that are unnecessary. He didn't do that in this game and that kept him out of foul trouble. So he could play 34 minutes and that was to Syracuse's benefit for sure. But early in this game, Syracuse was using Jesse Edwards to set screens up at the top of the key with either Joe Girard or Buddy Beheim when, when they would have the ball and go ISO. And um, they would bring Jesse Edwards up to set a screen to, to free him up. And what Florida State was doing was instead of trying to run through the screen, they were switching and they were switching every single time. And that was putting smaller guards on Jesse Edwards inside. And Syracuse early in the game went to Jesse Edwards a lot in those situations. And he scored rather easily. And then as the game went along, they kept getting away from it. You know, when Florida State, when Syracuse was up by 10, it was largely because they were doing that. And then as the first half went along, they were going to that less and less. It wasn't the Florida State stopped switching. They were still switching. Syracuse just wasn't going to it anymore. And I kept saying, Syracuse needs to run that pick, that pick play every single, 
every single time they have the ball until Florida State stops allowing a guard to try to defend Jesse Edwards in the paint. And then in the second half, they seem to not go to it almost at all. And you can see how that impacted Syracuse's shooting percentage in the first half. Syracuse shot 54%. In the second half, they shot 41%. And it also impacted Syracuse's outside shooting because there were a couple of times when the ball was thrown into Jesse and Florida State would send someone down to double him to prevent an easy basket and he would kick the ball out. Someone would make an extra pass and it would end up with an open look at a three. Syracuse was four for seven from three in the first half, 57%, three for 10 in the second half, 30%. So, you know, I, and J- Jesse did get to the line eight times, um, you know, so he was fouled quite a bit in there as well. He's getting some of some of Florida State's guys into foul trouble. And Florida State was missing one of their starting forwards. So their front court was lacking depth in this one. And I thought Syracuse had an opportunity to to exploit that a little bit more. But listen, he's been really good all season. Uh, he's been a huge bright spot for Syracuse this year. I just think that given where we're at with everything, that Syracuse can do a better job at running stuff for him to have him with more than seven or eight shot attempts. Especially when you know that a team is going to switch like Florida state did in this game. When you know, they're going to switch a guard and a forward, they're going to switch them on every, any every pick and roll at that point. When Joe sees, he comes out and there's a seven footer on him immediately give it to Jesse. Cause you know, okay, he's got a eight foot, eight inch or whatever, eight inch height difference. For those wondering at home, eight inches for basketball is a huge difference in height. Joel Embiid and Carl Anthony Towns make a living off that today. When they get switched with a Steph Curry height guy on him, it is game, set, match. Do that. Feed Jesse. Give him those easy ones. Again, if he doesn't make it, it's a good look regardless because there is not a six foot two or six foot three guard that will be able to go against him. He is seven foot, has put on some muscle. He can do whatever he needs to do down low. That's really easy for him. And as you said, if he kicks it out, all of a sudden someone's going to be open in a pass or two. And that's an easy bucket for a team that is a really good three-point shooting team like we are. Cole, Jimmy, Buddy, and Joe are all good three-point shooters. So why not run more plays for him, as you said? Why not feed him a little bit more? Get him more involved. All of a sudden, an offense, teams have to look out for him. Instead of having to just double Buddy, they have to say, okay, maybe we don't do that. Maybe we keep someone on Jesse to make sure he doesn't do whatever down low. And then someone else is going to get more open looks and our offense kicks into high gear. And then it feeds itself into a positive cycle. But for some reason, whenever anything goes right for this team, such as, as you said, Jesse playing well and getting multiple good looks against the guard, we just say, you know what? I didn't like that. That wasn't fun. I don't want to do that anymore. And it becomes the Joe Girard five turnover game yet again in every single game for us. Absolutely. Now, the last thing I want to talk about from this game is, is Benny Williams. Um, yeah. Where was he, by the way, may I ask? He, he was in the building, I guess. Um, didn't get on the floor at all. Zero minutes. And that's after only playing four minutes against Pittsburgh. Well, he and got zero, on the floor after the game. He did. So there, the video started circulating that after the game was over, Benny went out onto the floor and took a bunch of shots, um, you know, shooting with, with one of the trainers. So, on the one hand, 
it's good to see that he's still working, right? Clearly working and and trying to get better is not an issue with him. I know that um, not to bring up this name again, but that was one of, um, I think, Bayheim's frustrations with Kadari Richmond was that he didn't feel Kadari Richmond was working hard enough behind the scenes um, with conditioning, with, you know, fundamentals, et, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that was part of, I think, the clash between the two and, and their personalities. Uh, that's not an issue with Benny Williams. And he likes the work. He believes he's in the right spot to develop his game and get him ready to play more. Um, but there's, there's no question that it's got to be frustrating not to play. And four minutes against Pittsburgh, to your point that you brought up earlier, down the stretch of that game, Syracuse is up by double figures. The game is over with a minute or two to go. You know, throw Benny out there for you know another two or three minutes and give him some more run. You wouldn't think that that would be uh, anything that would harm any anybody, but uh, in this one, you know, if you're not going to play him early, you're not going to throw him in there late when he hasn't played. Um, there's there's no question about that. But zero minutes, and I I know Jim Beheim as he always has bases playing time, what your role is going to be how much you're going to see the floor as much as people look at the quick hook that he gives certain players and things of that nature. It's largely based on how you're performing in practice and we don't see practice. So we are asking questions, pondering, confused because we only have 25, 30% of the information. Right. We've seen Benny Williams play in games. We haven't seen him in practice. We haven't seen him in private workouts. We haven't seen him in film studies. We haven't seen him in any of this stuff. Um, so we're we're dealing with a very low percentage of the information. And yet. Him not playing at all is still confusing to me. Um, it's hitting an extreme. I mean, right. any, any good team in the NBA, in college basketball, you need to have a good bench. You need to have at least eight guys is like the prime number. If you hit eight players who you can trust in a game, you're set. But six is just not enough. No, and if you look at prior to the Pittsburgh game, okay, where he only played four minutes, the previous five games, he played 17 minutes, 14 minutes, 12 minutes, nine minutes, and 24 minutes. And that's good. That's awesome. So, and he was starting, so he's starting to see an uptick in, in how much he's playing. He's getting more shots offensively. Um, now, rebounding wasn't great, but I thought he was giving you a little bit something defensively. And he's averaging about 13 minutes a game on the season. Um, now, the last time they played Florida State, he only played two minutes. So he played two minutes the first time and zero minutes this time. It's also entirely possible that for whatever reason, Bayheim says this is a bad matchup for Benny, and I am not putting him out there in a situation that's going to cause him to fail. It could very well be that because he did that with Jesse Edwards last year. There was a huge question of why do you play Jesse Edwards in this game? He scores seven points and grabs five rebounds in 15 minutes and blocks two shots, makes a huge difference in the game. And then the next game, he doesn't play at all. What's up with that? And he was asked the question and he said, Listen, he's not ready to be a full-time contributor right now. There are certain matchups that play to his strengths. And in those matchups, I will put him out there and play him, and he will be good for us. I'm not going to put him out there with the matchups that that will um, 
they will make they will bring out his weaknesses, right? They will um, they aren't able to hide the the areas that he's struggling in right now. So he's putting his player in a position to succeed and not going to put him out there in a position to fail just because the previous time out he had a good game. It's very possible there's something with that going on with Benny, but outside of an, that level of explanation, we don't know. And so I'm not saying. Yes, I'd like to see him play a lot more because I think there's a lot of potential there and I'd like to see him realize that. And I'm also curious about how he's developing. And since we don't see practice, I want to see him play in the games because it's it's a selfish reason, to be honest with you. Um, but absent that explanation from Bayheim, it's not that I'm necessarily questioning the decision and saying Bayheim was wrong. I'm saying I don't understand the decision. That's that's where I'm at. I don't understand why he's not playing more. It makes no sense why he's not playing more. Again, as you said, he was showing us positivity. And if it's a matchup thing with Florida State, okay, whatever. That's that's cool with us. We'll deal with that later. But the fact that he's not getting even a few minutes when especially Jimmy isn't or Jimmy isn't playing well and Joe isn't playing well. When the one person who can replace Jimmy pretty well off the bench is Benny. He is right there to replace Jimmy when he's not having a good game. And you say, nope, he doesn't exist in this game. What's the deal here? Like, again, as you said, he got more minutes. He was playing well, and he did it last year with Jesse. He'd play him, not play him because it was a matchup thing. Okay, that's fine with me. But when you are in a game where you are up 15, like we were against Pittsburgh, Give him the last few minutes. Give him four minutes. He's not your 16th man on the team. He's not number number 13 on the team. He's one of your top seven guys. I don't get why you don't chuck him out there. You know he's not going to do your team poorly. He's not going to, like, he's. it's not going to be replacing Kevin Garnett with Brian Scalabrini in the last minute of the NBA Finals. Like, it's not going to be that level of change. He's going to play well. You know he's going to play well. So trust him. Let him get a couple minutes out there. Any minute for him is valuable because it'll help him get the rust off, get the kinks out of his system. But you're not letting him do that. So it's going to get worse and worse as the season goes on. And all of a sudden, when it hits March and you're an ACC tournament play and you can't put Benny in because you don't trust him yet, that's on you. That is on Jim Beheim. It's on no one else but Jim Beheim at that point. I, it's very clear. Give him some minutes. In garbage time, give him minutes. In this game, when two of your five aren't playing well and you only have one guy off the bench, he is the next guy off the bench. Just put him in, even two minutes. Give him something. But no, we get nothing instead. And it makes no sense. And it continues to make no sense. And and listen, um, Syracuse isn't going to tournament this year, right? I mean, they're, they're just not. I mean, it's, it's eight and nine, and I think they've got 15 games left, something like that. Um, they probably would have to win 11 of them, maybe 12 to, to have a shot at going to the tournament. And one of those at least being Duke, we have but, 14 games left, two of them against Duke. Uh, so that's fun. Yeah. That's, that's just not happening. But, um, to, so, you know, that kind of brings up the next point. Where, where does Syracuse go from here? To me, the, the, the main goal for the rest of the season is to figure out a way to stay above 500 and preserve Jim Bayham's streak of never having a losing season. That is goal number one. Goal number two is to set yourself up for the best possible um, scenario for next season. That means, to me, 
um, figure out some things with the zone with Cole Swider getting used to it more playing time for Benny Williams to get him set up to, to have a strong year next year, um, making sure that Jesse Edwards understands that if he comes back, he's going to be one of the focal points of the offense next season. If he continues to develop the way that we saw his improvement from last year to this year, uh, th- those are kind of the main areas that I'm looking at. Now, what's interesting is we found out this past week that Jimmy Beheim is petitioning the NCAA for a fifth season. What does it mean if he comes back? That's that's an interesting discussion. I think we'll get into that in our next episode. But um, regardless of that situation, you know, I, I think the rest of the season should be geared towards those two things. And in the upcoming schedule, there are still winnable games there. There are opportunities for Syracuse to get on um, in the win column. And you know, we we talked about this stretch of games in one of our previous episodes. And if Syracuse was able to beat Pittsburgh, beat Florida State, beat Clemson, you lose to Duke, and then you beat Pittsburgh and Wake Forest again, you put yourself back into a situation where you feel pretty good about preserving that streak. Losing to Florida State puts you behind the eight ball of one of those games you thought you needed to win. So now, this game against Clemson, if those are your goals, preserving that streak, this game against Clemson is almost a must win, right? Because you got a game at Pittsburgh. Yes, you beat them before, but playing at their place is much more difficult. You've got two games against Duke, as we mentioned. You've still got North Carolina, and that's at their place. You've got to play at Virginia Tech, who's better than you. You've got to play at NC State, who's just about similar to you. Um, so, And then you got to play at Notre Dame, who's better than you. You've got to play Miami and Wake Forest still at home. They're both better than you. So, you know, this, this is getting to a situation where if you don't start winning some of these games – even some of these toss-up games, your streak is going to go out the window. So I think the immediate thing for Syracuse is you got to beat Clemson, try not to be completely embarrassed against Duke, and then come to that stretch of uh, at the end of January where you're playing at Pittsburgh, Wake Forest at home, at NC State, Louisville at home, and at Boston College. And, and try to win three or four of those and, and see where you're at at that point. To keep the streak alive, there are 14 games left. You need to go eight and six. Mathematically, you need to go eight and six because if you go seven and seven right now, it's done. You need to go eight and six and last 14 games to keep the streak alive for Jim Beheim. That is kind of where you're at. Assuming the Dukes and UNCs are all losses, that means you need to go eight and three in 11 games. And right now, I have no faith that will happen with this team. Absolutely none. That is tough. That is really tough to put yourself. Here's the other thing about that, though, is you might actually have to win one more game than that because you got the ACC tournament coming. Mm -hmm. And so you need to put yourself in a situation where you've won enough games that even if you lose the ACC tournament, you're still fine. So you might instead of eight and six becomes nine and five. And if those three games are losses, you got to go nine and two in the other 11 games. That's tough. So you got to start winning some of these games. I mean, it's, it's in a situation where it looks bleak to say the least to uh, preserving that streak. And it's, it's an unbelievably impressive streak, but you would just hate for this to be the way that it ends. If you had had won your close games, You'd be sitting yep. at 14. Even half right of them. Even half of them, you're sitting in a spot where the where the streak isn't in jeopardy. And all of a sudden you're chilling. And then if you say, okay, 
those three games we lose, those UNC and the Duke games, all of a sudden you say, rest of these, all pretty winnable. I can kind of survive. There are six games you lost in the schedule already that are that are five-point losses or less, and you played poorly in. Six of them. Again, you win those ones, 14 and three. All of a sudden, this team feels really good, and you feel strong, and you say, okay, we can afford a Duke and UNC loss here or there. That's okay with us, but we know we're going to beat Clemson and we're going to beat Louisville and we're going to beat Miami and Pittsburgh and all these teams. But all of a sudden, as we've said, you put yourself in the worst possible situation by what has happened. And it's not like we have anyone to blame but ourselves. Like we've had one or two games helped along by a referee, but in each of them, we shot ourselves in the foot and then the referee just aided that along. It wasn't like the ref was the only reason we lost some of these games. There are multiple times where we have lost ourselves the games and the refs have been a part of that. And that is the difference between the basketball and football teams this year is that football, the refs were a bigger part of why the game was lost, not the players themselves. But this one is, and I'm going to say is totally on the team. It is on the players. It is on Bayheim. It is not on any outside force. It is on that group. And for some reason, a coach that has never had a losing season cannot figure it out. And that is scary times. We are in a very scary point with this team where it is not looking good. And there is no confidence, at least in the past, when you've seen the Tyus battles and the buddy Bayheims of recent years, you've had some hope something could happen. There's a little bit of magic there. I don't have hope. There's any magic anywhere, even close to this team. No. And, and we've, you know, those that follow me on Twitter and, and whatever know that I, I harp on the officials quite a bit and I do, and I'm still going to, that's not going to change. Uh, but there's really only one game this season where you can point to it and say the officials legit, you have a legitimate argument to say the officials cost Syracuse the game. That was a wake forest game. Everything else. There've been bad calls. Yes. The officials are do a poor job overall, in my opinion. Yes. But um, that's the one you can point to. Otherwise every other game has been Syracuse's fault. So um, it, it is what it is, but um you know, I, I think Syracuse has their work cut out for them going forward and they got to start figuring out a way to pull out these games. No question about it, but that'll do it for episode 29 of believe in Syracuse podcast presented by bet online and Hoffman sausage company or Mike McAllister. I'm Kyle F and we'll see you next time. Peace. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.